You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. So it's fun. It's nice to be able to preach on my birthday. I don't think I ever have done that in my many years of preaching, so this is cool. So it'll be a first. Um, But in the next uh, few months... We're going to be embarking on a journey on what it means to be a follower of Christ and to find our source of identity in Christ, our source of life in Christ. And as we join me in this journey in the book of of Colossians, I want us to consider the word supremacy or supreme. The definition of supremacy is this, the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority power, or status. So as you think about who is supreme, who comes to mind, what comes to mind? In the sports world, you might think of LeBron James or Tom Brady. In the entertainment industry, you may think of Oprah Winfrey or Beyonce. In the business tech world, you may think of Steve Jobs and Apple or Jeff Bezos of Amazon. These people excel at what they do. They are probably some of the best representatives of their fields. When you think of these specific industries, these names are on the top of the list. But even so, there is one, capital O, who surpasses all these significant people. The Apostle Paul and Timothy, the authors of this letter, passionately desires the church in Colossae and God for us today to believe and trust that Jesus Christ is the ultimate supreme God-man who has come to save us and to transform a people to himself. Paul's point in this letter is, is that as we know Christ and all his benefits, it will make all the difference in your life, in all areas of your life. So with this in mind, I want us to encourage us as a church to meditate and to memorize Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It'll be our confession of faith throughout this journey to help us on the way of memorizing that passage. I'm going to memorize it in the English Standard Version, but every Sunday I'm going to ask us to come as before my sermon, and we're going to repeat this verse. Why? It is considered the Christ hymn. It's a capstone of Paul's uh, letter to this church. It's why we exist. Knowing Christ and who he is and what he has done is central for us in our lives. It's central for us to know that good theology about Christ motivates proper behavior and ministry. For we are tempted, right, in my life, I know in my life, and I'm sure in your life, to put exalt other things and make other things more supreme over Christ, robbing him of his supremacy. But when our theology finds its truth in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then he functions as a correction of bad theology and philosophy. Moreover, as he rules supreme in our lives, our ministries, and our relationships are Christ-centered and gospel-empowered. So let's begin our journey in reading the first eight verses of this letter to Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, 
and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as also does among you, since the day you've heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, on your behalf, and he has made known to, you, to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we gather around your word, and there's so much in this book and even in this section of the scripture. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you direct this time, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand what we're hearing today, that it would impact us and in such a way that, that we are di different as we leave this morning because your Spirit's at work applying the truth of, of Christ into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning is going to be a lot of background information because I feel like we need to prepare ourselves for what's ahead. And in fact, if you're interested, either in your small group study or in personal study, I have a, a I produced, I created a Bible study for you. It will be back in the narthex on, a, on the table. So if you're interested to follow along this here, it'll be pretty close to each of my messages. It'll be close to the, to the, to the Bible study. So... FYI. Who are the authors? Well, we see that Paul and Timothy wrote this letter to this new church in Colossae, and it was about 60-62 AD. Here Paul reminds the recipients of the letter of who he is and who Timothy is. We need to understand that Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned, and he never met this, these believers. And in that in that vein, he reminds them that he is apostle. And what does an apostle mean? Here, apostle means that, that he is speaking with authority. He is speaking the very words of God, from God. So Paul is coming with authority. He's coming, bringing the truth, the gospel, to bear to the hearts of this young church. And these are the recipients. These, this is a new community of believers, mostly Gentile, but, also, but some also are from the Jewish faith, or Jewish people as well. The city of Colossae was predominantly Gentile, but there's silent evidence of a Jewish presence. Additionally, we need to understand that, that, that Colossae was not one of the sexy cities of the day. It's not, it wasn't like Ephesus. It wasn't like Corinth. It was a, it was a city in transition. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, you know, a city that you want to move to, but it, it was an area that needed the gospel. And we see that in verse 8 that the church was planted probably in the mid-50s by Epaphras, who was from Colossae, but was, who lived in Ephesus for a while and was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so as he was converted, he had a desire to go back to his hometown and to plant a church. And so that's how Paul hears about this church in Colossae through, through Epaphras going back to him and saying, hey, this is what's going on in my town. So what is the reason? There's always a reason that Paul writes these letters. There's a reason why he wrote to Ephesians. There's a reason why he wrote to the Corinthians. There's a reason why he wrote to Timothy. Here, the reason we need to understand is that this young church is being threatened 
by some bad teaching, some false teaching. He knew that again because Epaphras let him know, informed him of that. Now, we'll focus on what those false teachings are later in our series, but let me say this. It was a mixed bag, a variety of teaching that says you need to experience certain things, you need to know certain things for you to be complete in Christ. So it was really going against this idea of the supremacy of Christ. It was watering down the gospel as Paul was called to preach it. So that's why Paul is writing this letter, to help this church stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Paul's vision here is one of supremacy. He wanted to make sure, this is why the sermon series is called The Supremacy of Christ Leads to Supreme Living, because Paul's desire, his vision for this church to understand is that there's one true Lord of the empire, and his name is Jesus, and that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior that was promised from long ago. So everything flows from the claims about Jesus. See, Paul's claims transcends what we in this Western world would call religion. One commentator eloquently states this, politics, culture, cult, spirituality, power, ethnicity, and one's moral religious heritage all come into play for Paul. And at the top of the heap, ruling over all, is Jesus as Messiah and Lord. See, the entire letter, Paul is boasting one central theme. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord of all. And that boast flowed from one and only source, the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, Paul's vision to proclaim the supremacy of Christ, he knew that as as he did that, that will allow the church to to be ruled by Christ more and more. In fact, one commentator says this about the vision of this letter. He says, God has conquered the powers and delivered all humans from sin in its power and reconciled the entire cosmos to himself in and through and under Christ. What does that mean? Humans of all sorts, Jews and Gentiles, are alienated and separated from God and one another and have formed themselves into tribes, nations, and empires. Second, at work in all tribalism and nationalism as we see it today, in cosmopolitan imperial design are the dark powers of death, the gods, powers, and the forces of this age. However, in Christ, God entered the story, defeated sin and death, and conquered the powers through his life, death, on the cross, and resurrection, and accession to the, thrones of the one, to the throne of the one true God. And lastly, practically for us, in union with Christ and baptism, humans of all sorts, of all kinds, can break free from their sin in captivities to become one reconciled family of God to do to, and so do dwell in love, peace, and justice. We will uncover that throughout our series, but I want to set the stage of that's where we're going. So with that in mind, with this great vision that Paul has for this church, that God has for us today, as we journey together in Colossians, let us now focus on this first eight verses in chapter one, where we see, uh, not uh, I call them sub-things, but they're not subordinate, but they're part of this idea of Christ being supreme. But these key words that you're seeing in your your sermon uh, notes in the bulletin, the words are grace and peace, faith, love, and hope, and truth. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2 
as we look how Paul enters into this conversation with the church and what he first lets them, wants them to know. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and, and peace from God our Father. From the get-go, Paul and Timothy desires for these, church, for these believers to, to understand who they are in Christ. And he addressed them as what? As saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, re, he's, he's letting them know who they belong to and what Christ has done. So he first describes them as saints. And what he means by that, they, that these believers, because of their faith in Christ, are dedicated to God, where God's presence makes them holy. Now, saints do not refer to a special kind of Christian. It refers to all Christians. Paul, is, Paul and Timothy are addressing all Christians at that church. For, one, for Paul, one who becomes a holy person by God's saving work, by the Spirit's sanctifying work in Christ, and by the words, the gospel's effects. See, what makes this even special to the Gentiles in this church is that the word saints is synonymous with Jews or God's people or Israelites in the Old Testament. So Paul is, is encouraging this church made of both Gentiles and Jews that, that they are now part of God's holy people together because of Jesus Christ. They are saints. He encourages them first, reminding them that they are saints, that they are dedicated to God by the work of grace. Then he says faithful, that they're faithful. And this word faithful entails both the dis distinct act of trust and believing, but also that ongoing trust over time. The term expresses a new kind of family formed in Christ that becomes the center of their identity. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as I speak to you today, right, he, as Paul is speaking to us today in his word, if you're in Christ, you are his saints and faithful. That is a reality for you today. You, he considers you a saint and he considers you faithful. Amazing. When we see in our own lives how unfaithful we can be, and sometimes how holy we can be. But yet he says, you are my saints, and you are faithful. And then he says, which is important, in Christ. And we will develop this throughout. But I want, want to say this. This expression, in Christ, reminds us objectively that we are justified, that we are declared righteous before God. That we have eternal life because of Christ. We have freedom because of Christ. We have a new creation life because of Christ. We have a renewed mind because of Christ. We have removal of sin and reconciliation because we're in Christ. And we have abundant riches because we're in Christ. Additionally, though, we are encouraged subjectively by in Christ in that we, are, we reckon ourselves dead in Christ. That there is no condemnation in Christ. We are one body of people in Christ. We label with one another in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We enter into a new creation in Christ. We, have find, we find freedom in Christ. That is, the churches who believe in Christ are all in Christ. See, all of life is in Christ. Our ultimate identity is that we are in Christ. Thus, often so if that is true, when we're faced with life's biggest problems or struggles, we need to remind ourselves that we are in Christ. So I don't know often about you 
that my biggest problem is that I forget that I'm in Christ. And that leads to worry. It leads to fears. It leads to laziness. It leads to giving in to sin. So I want to encourage you today, no matter what you're facing today, what are, what are the conflict you may have within your marriage or within your family or within at work, whatever struggles that you're wrestling with in your health, physically, spiritually, if you're in Christ, I want to remind you that you are in Christ and that you now have uh, the source and power to live in that reality. That suffering doesn't ultimately define you, Christ does. Your pain doesn't ultimately define you, but Christ does. Your sin does not ultimately define you, but Christ does. You're in Christ. And so that helps us understand these next two terms, grace and peace. Grace from our Father, peace from our Father. This grace is reminding us, right, grace from the Father is reminding us, not only are we justified, but we are part of God's family because of Christ. We are adopted into his family. We're into the Father's family. Again, this is all of grace. That's what he says, grace of our Lord, of our God, our Father. And it refers to God's goodness and redemptive work showered upon unworthy, non-status humans who are transformed by that grace into saints who become grateful, contributing members of the body of Christ. Grace. God has given us something we do not deserve and that we're part of his family. But not only that, we have peace. Paul uses this word to encourage us, this word of peace, of our general well-being, including, may include material flourishing, but more so an inner relational wholeness of God's people. Now, you have peace now. Because you're in Christ, you have peace now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, not in 10 years, not when you die. You have peace now because of Christ. You have grace and you have Christ. You have peace because you are in Christ, because of the work of Christ, because of the person of Christ. But not only does he encourage them with this idea of the truth of grace and of peace, we see in verses 3 through 5, this, I, the, he encourages them to under, of, of, of their faith and of their love and of their hope. Look again. It says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, as you read the Bible, we understand that these characteristics, these terms are very common throughout Scripture. These, these terms, are, as we are faithful to the text, belong to those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have faith, you have in Christ, you have his love. In Christ, you have hope. They are not natural to us, but they're part of our spiritual life in Christ. See, God brings them to bear in Christ. So first, a spiritual person is one known by their faith in Christ. This faith is a certain consequence, a certain consequence of God's work in us. See, Paul's encouragement to us is to show that, that he regards us, as, guards us as an unchallengeable evidence of the work of the Spirit. See, God reassures, Paul reassures us that a genuine spiritual work of grace can be recognized by the presence of faith in Christ. See, the Spirit leads us to put our faith in Christ. Those whose faith in Christ 
Jesus acknowledges that there's no other God or small gods in our lives. See, it's that working out of faith in Christ. We will not allow um, false teaching, bad teaching to interfere because we are in Christ. We have all that we need. But not only do we see faith in Christ as a sign of true spiritual life, but also their love for other believers in Christ. See, Paul sees a genuine love for one another, no matter their tribe, their ethnic group, or their nationality. Yes, naturally, some people know the joys of family love, and they, be, they may be known for a love that is truly self-sacrificial. But hear me. Unless they, are in, if they are, if, unless they are in Christ, unless they are Christ, they cannot ultimately share the love of the Christian family, that distinctive gift of the Holy Spirit to every child of God in Christ. See, it is that, it is that love, that supernatural love, it's that Christ's love that we sang about in, in Lift High the Cross that binds people of different nationalities, of different cultural experiences into one fellowship which is unique and genuine. See, God has given these spirit qualities of faith and love, which are now our means that we have brought by the power and grace of God into a relationship, not only with Christ in heaven, but with other people around us. That is a work of Christ. See, we have these restored relationships with Christ and with one another because, what does the verse say? The hope laid for us in heaven. Faith, love, hope. See, for Paul, hope has to do with the ultimate future. It, it is the confident assurance that the vaster blessing is stored for believers in the life of the world to come. When Christ comes again and establishes a new heavens and a new earth, that is where our hope is built, where body and soul is, is, is united and we live eternally with God. See, again, another work of the Spirit of producing this hope. But look, look, what's, what's interesting is that often, and this is true for me, often we think that, 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 that due to our faith, we have hope. But look at the verse. It says, Paul states the reverse. See, the Christian presence taste of reality and fellowship with God and people is but an anticipation of the substantial realities that are reserved for us in the future, laid up in heaven for us. Listen to how one commentator describes this. He says, therefore, listen, this is good, really good. Therefore, we do not think of ourselves as largely enjoying the fruits of Christ's victory now with heaven or some, as some glorious consummation, a kind of finishing touch. Rather, listen, rather we are to recognize that heaven holds most of the great things won for us by Christ, and our present experience is no more than a precious foretaste of what is to come. Do you hear that? Paul wants this church, God wants us to remember that, that our hope is not on this earth. See, what was going on with the false teachers, and we'll, again, I'll get to that later, what they were saying is that you can be complete now. Don't worry about heaven. You can, have, you can experience the fullness of Christ now if you do these things, if you know these things. And Paul said, no, God, our hope is something much better when we're, th when we're with Jesus in perfect harmony with one another and with him where we live out our lives together. 
where there's no more violence, no more killing, right? Senseless killing. No more threats of bombs. So our hope is, is something that is so much awesome than what we experience today. But if we're experiencing grace today, it's just a foretaste of what's ahead for us. See, the point to Paul is this. If the risen Christ and our Christian family and heaven are the center of our spiritual concerns, then we know that we possess an authentic spirituality. Our last but not least theme is truth. Look at the end of verse 5 and 8. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you've heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The last word I want to talk about, which we'll see throughout this passage, throughout this letter, is truth. Since the backdrop of this letter is the threat of bad teaching, people teaching untruths, Paul chooses his words very carefully, yet boldly. Six things I want us to take away from this idea of truth, this important concept of truth. First, the gospel, the good news, has come to them as a word. That is, by preaching and teaching, which called for a listening and understanding response. See, God's power has been brought close to them by the proclamation, by the preaching of the word. Not by act or deed, not that that's not important, but God primarily uses a preaching of the word to convict and change hearts. That's why we do this every Sunday. There's a reason why you have a preacher come and preach. Because we believe that God's word has an impact on us to remind us of who we are in Christ and to live in that identity. Second, not only has the gospel come to them as a word, second, this proclamation concerned the truth, absolute and final. The gospel of Christ is nothing less than the truth beyond human invention and human imagination. It is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We can either add to it or subtract from it without doing serious harm to the integrity of that unique proclamation of the gospel. That is why Paul is clear to this church, whatever you hear from anybody else is nonsense. It is the gospel that you need to hold on to. In fact, that's the third thing I want us to understand, that the word of truth equals the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we are, in a sense, preaching doctrine. We're preaching God's word. The good news Paul received from Christ and he preached was essentially doctrinal, right? It's, and it's consisted of, of a body of truth, of Jesus' birth, of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his inter intercession. See, preaching doctrine, preaching the gospel is not theoretical and impractical, but it's rooted, listen, in historical facts that all of us have to wrestle with, believer or unbeliever. We are, bound, we are founding our, our faith on something that is absolutely true, rooted in historical facts. Fourth, the whole world hears the same gospel. See, Paul is reassuring this young church that this gospel that other churches have heard, you're hearing, it's the same gospel. It hasn't changed. 
The same gospel that I'm preaching now is the same gospel I preached throughout the, 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 the area. And people were hearing and receiving it. Fifth, the gospel bears fruit. The authentic truth gospel has at all times bears fruit and grows throughout the world. The faithful preaching of the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world today. I looked statistically in different parts of Africa, and we see that from 1900 to 2000, listen to the staggering growth of the gospel in these countries. In Congo Zaire, there was 1.4% Christians in, in 1900. In year 2000, 95.4% are Christian or profess to be Christian. In Angolia, there was 0.6% in 1900. 94.1% today. In Swaziland, 1% were Christians in 1900. 86.9% are Christians in the year 2000. In Zambia, 0.3, now 82.4. Kenya, 0.2, now 79.3. Can you see that the gospel, when it is proclaimed faithfully, is making a difference? It's changing lives and hopefully cultures and communities for the glory of God. And lastly, the gospel of grace is heard and understood. What enabled them, what enables us to hear and understand in a word it says, the grace of God and truth. See, this young church had understood grace in its true meaning and simplicity without any of the false additions that so easily make grace no longer grace. This means that from the very beginning, as these young believers and as we understand, we understand that a person cannot make, cannot, can make no claim on God, however sincere or faithful he or she may think he himself or herself to be. And that the heart of the gospel concerns not our commitment to God, but his free and merciful offer of the God of, to commit himself to us in Christ. That our acceptance of the Savior is meaningless unless God has already freely accepted us in him. That the very essence of the story is not that we strive to make Christ our Lord, but of Christ in his sheer goodness and mercy undertakes for his own sake to make us his servants, despite the fact that we never cease to be unprofitable and undeserving of such a privilege. God is calling us as we hear the word preach to respond, not only to hear, but to respond both believer and unbeliever. If or you are in one of those two categories, I encourage you, as you hear, as, as we're in this series in Colossians, as you hear the gospel proclaimed of the supremacy of Christ, of the glory of Christ, of the person of Christ, of the work of Christ, that you may resp respond and be encouraged if you're a believer today and walk more confidently in your faith in Christ. But if you're one who's not yet made that step of faith, I encourage you to consider Christ in all of who he is. And I pray that your, the Spirit would make him known to you this day or the next day or throughout our series. Friends, grace, peace, faith, love, hope, faith, truth are all part of the gospel story, all part of what's going on here in the book of Colossians. God has invited us to be in Christ because he knows there's nothing better but to be in Christ. So as we journey throughout these next months through Colossians, by faith in Christ, I hope our hearts are renewed and refreshed 
to make more Christ more supreme in our lives. Let's pray. Great God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for the faith that you've given us, the love that you've given us, the hope that you've given us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is supreme, who rules with gentleness and with compassion, who wants us to know and taste and see that truly you are good. Help us as we journey through this time together. May that make, Holy Spirit, make that a reality more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.